You're listening to The College Connection from New England Public Radio. Vincent Ferraro, a Mount Holyoke professor who specializes in international relations since the end of the Cold War, spoke on recent developments of the Islamic State. This lecture was recorded on March 22, 2016, in Mackmer Hall at UMass Amherst. Thank you for coming. Uh, and whatever you do, don't worry about getting up to get more pizza or anything like that. I'm used to chaos in the classroom. It doesn't really bother me at all. Uh, and I'm just going to give an overview of what I think is going on in Syria. Uh, and then we'll open it up for questions. And I, my particular take on Syria is that very few people really understand exactly what's going on because we refer to a single event like the Syrian Civil War, and that's certainly one part of it. But there are a number of wars that are going on simultaneously on Syrian territory. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to break it down by the, the different wars that I think are going on. Um, and it doesn't mean that necessarily at the end you're going to have more clarity about exactly what's happening. But at least you'll be able to parse out some of the events a little more intelligently. Um, because not all of them are directly related or tied to each other. Some are completely independent of each other. Um, and it's hard to, to put them all together. It's not like a jigsaw puzzle. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very different type of thing. The first war that's going on is the one with which we're familiar. It's the Syrian civil war that's been going on since 2011. Uh, it's part of a larger phenomenon that we call the Arab Spring. Uh, a number of protests took place, starting in Tunisia, uh, and then moving across what we call the Arab world. Uh, and these were protests against entrenched dictatorships uh, that had been in place for an awful long time. Uh, and it was an expression of discontent with those dictatorships and a, a desire for change. Um, it's, in its initial beginnings in Syria were pretty straightforward. The Assad family had been in control of Syria for a very, very long time. Uh, the elder Assad uh, was pretty ruthless. Uh, the, the current Assad, Bashar al-Assad, um, was less ruthless than his father at the beginning, uh, but has turned out to be just as ruthless um, as the civil war has progressed. Um, and this civil war is basically people expressing a desire for a change in government, uh, something that's pretty familiar uh, to us all. We don't really have a good identity of the various groups that are involved. These are the moderate Syrian rebels that Obama talks about all the time. Uh, and there are a variety of different groups um, that have coalesced uh, on an anti-Assad banner uh, to try to replace him with something else. Uh, what that something else is, is not clear. But that's not unique to Syria. Uh, we went through the same experience after the overthrow of Mubarak in Egypt. Um, we've had two something else's since uh, the overthrow of Mubarak. We've had this in uh, Libya ever since the overthrow of Gaddafi. Uh, we don't really have anyone else in Libya right now, although we have two groups, one in Benghazi and one in Tripoli, that claim to have authority. Um, but the Syrian moderates, as I'll call them, uh, really didn't have a very specific agenda. 
except that they didn't want Assad. <laughs> the second war that's going on is a regional war, uh, and this is the war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, and the media will portray this as a Sunni versus Shia war. Uh, don't fall into that trap. Uh, we're really not talking about a religious war. Um, the Sunnis and Shias don't hate each other to the degree that the press would have you believe. Um, but the Shia and Sunni serve as proxies for, in this particular case, Saudi Arabia, Sunni, and Iran, Shia. Um, and they're killing each other because they want predominance in the Middle East. Um, and that's a pretty straightforward explanation. They're not killing each other because of sectarian differences. Um, now this war was started largely by the United States. Um, and it started, the United States started this war when it overthrew uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Saddam Hussein was a Sunni barrier. Um, Saddam Hussein ruled a Shia population which was sympathetic in many respects to Iran. Uh, but Saddam Hussein himself was a Sunni uh, and ruled essentially in Sunni interests. And the Saudis were very comfortable with this because it represented a very effective barrier against the intrusion of Iranian influence in, in Middle Eastern affairs. When the United States overthrew uh, Saddam Hussein, it tipped the balance of power uh, in the Middle East to a tremendous degree. Um, and what you had instead was a big vacuum uh, where Iraq once was, um, but the, ultimately the, the government of Iraq was captured by um, uh, what the Saudis believed were Shia uh, adherents, uh, agents of Iran in many respects. And so the Saudis saw themselves in a very precarious situation with Iran being empowered uh, and the monarchy in Saudi Arabia threatened by um, that increase in power on the part of Iran. Now that part of the conflict has been amplified by the recent uh, agreement on the Iranian nuclear weapons program, or nuclear program, uh, because the Saudis have interpreted the American uh, willingness to go along with the Iranians to forge an agreement as an indication that the Americans were becoming more sympathetic to Iran uh, and interpreted the agreement as a geopolitical increase in Iranian power because now Iran is free to sell its oil uh, and presumably will exert more power in the Middle East. So that regional war is really quite important. Now the third war is a religious war. Uh, it has to do with the soul of the fundamentalist uh, Islamists. Uh, and they really do disagree a great deal with each other. Um, um, in many respects, it's hard to categorize exactly the way the uh, Islamic fundamentalists play this out. But you can think of it as Saudi Arabia versus Qatar versus Al-Qaeda versus the Islamic State. Um, and what they're really fighting over is uh, who's going to rule the more radical elements of the Islamic community. Um, there are no moderates in this, this group to speak of whatsoever. But they have different conceptions of what uh, the fundamentalist Islamic vision should coalesce around. At one extreme, the Islamic State believes in the reestablishment of the caliphate. Um, and the caliphate refers to the the period 
uh, during the 10th century uh, when Muslim influence was at its apex uh, in North Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. Uh, and you know, that has attracted a number of different groups, not only within the Middle East, but all over the world. Boko Haram, for example, in Nigeria, uh, has claimed allegiance to the caliphate, as have some fundamentalist Islamic groups in Indonesia. Um, at the other extreme, uh, you have the Saudis, uh, who favor a Wahhabist interpretation of Islam, but don't really want to see a caliphate established, because the caliphate would, it, it would totally destroy the monarchy in Saudi Arabia, totally inconsistent with the rule of, of government the way the Saudis want to, to see it implemented. And so you've had this real struggle for the soul of the radical Islamist um, that breaks down in terms of how the Islamic vision is uh, operationalized uh, on the planet, whether it's going to be a territorial nation state like Saudi Arabia, or whether it's going to be a caliphate, uh, which is non-territorial, uh, and just generally speaking, uh, involves the expansion of the community of the faithful. Um, that part of the war um, is pretty low-key uh, in terms of the press in the United States and in Europe, uh, because we don't really understand all the cleavages between these different groups. Um, but I think for some of the, the players in this game, it's a really intense war. The fourth war is the Russian-American War. Um, which has been going on since the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. Um, Vladimir Putin, the president of, of Russia, uh, refers to the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Uh, and he has seized opportunities in order to demonstrate, primarily to the Russian people, but to the world as a whole, that Russia is still a major player in world affairs. And he does this because of a sense of isolation that he feels uh, and disrespect that he feels from the rest of the world. And this basically started um, in the, the Western uh, intervention in the Bosnian War, uh, where the United States and other Western powers uh, tried to defend the Bosnian people against the Serbians and the Croatians. Uh, and the Russians interpreted this as uh, an attempt to diminish Russian uh, authority and Russian presence in the Balkan uh, because it really uh, compromised the ability of Serbia to obtain its ends. And that uh, slight that the, the Russians perceived in Bosnia uh, was amplified when ultimately Kosovo was created as an independent state in 1998 um, through NATO intervention. Um, manifests itself in the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008, and then in the Russian intervention in Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea, and then ultimately with the Russians playing a major role in Syria. Um, this is a Russian game. Uh, the Americans are not interested in playing it, or let me rephrase that, <coughs> Obama is not interested in playing it. If you're interested in parsing out uh, Obama's um, attitude toward the Russians in Syria, I recommend Jeffrey Goldberg's uh, piece in uh, a recent issue of The Atlantic, uh, which is really a, an excellent uh, portrayal of the way Obama is viewing his role as uh, uh, the implementer of foreign policy for the United States. But Obama doesn't want to play the game 
Um, he's interested in uh, protecting American interests, and he doesn't really want to see Russian influence expand. Uh, but he understands that the Americans, after the intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan, are really not interested in playing great power games, at least at the current moment. This is an interesting convention. Uh, because the Russians uh, are strongly supportive of Assad, um, largely because of the geopolitical advantages Assad has given Russia in Syria. Uh, and there are two major advantages. Uh, number one, uh, a naval base uh, outside of Tartus, and the second, a military base outside of Latakia. Uh, and this has given the Russians a military, a sustained military presence in the Middle East, something that the Russians have desired ever since the overthrow of Nasser in Egypt. Um, the Russians really want to play uh, in the Middle East. They think they have very legitimate uh, interests in the Middle East, uh, but they've been closed out for a long period of time, and Assad has given them that, that entree. Uh, so the Russians came in. Uh, they made a big difference, at least initially, uh, by supporting the government of Assad. But then they surprised everyone in the planet by announcing a pullout um, a couple of days ago. Now, no one really believes that the pullout is real. I mean, the Russian forces are going to stay at the naval base in Tartus. They're going to stay in Latakia. Um, but, you know, presumably the bombing of uh, the anti-Assad forces is going to stop. Um, and really sort of mysterious to us because Assad's position is by no means assured <coughs> right now. There are still major areas around Aleppo uh, that are still being contested by anti-Assad forces. Um, and they could, they're very precarious uh, and they could uh, fall at any point. So we don't really understand exactly why Putin took this particular time to pull out Maybe some of you who study Russia more closely can give us some insight in the question and answer period. Uh, but this is an interesting dimension. This is a Russian move against the United States. The fifth war that's going on is the anti-terrorism war. Um, the Islamic State is, and its offshoot, um, the Islamic State and uh, Al-Qaeda's offshoot, al-Nusra, in Syria, uh, have been associated with acts of terrorism uh, all over the world, uh, most recently today in Brussels. Um, and virtually every government uh, has an interest in trying to do something about terrorism. Terrorism undermines the legitimacy of the nation state, uh, and no government wants to see terrorists succeed, no matter what the objectives of the terrorists are. Legitimating those types of tactics uh, are really uh, dangerous uh, acts for a nation state. So you've had quite an alliance. You've had the United States, Europe, the Russians to a certain extent, and the Chinese to a certain extent, uh, wanting to wage this as an anti-terror war against the Islamic State and al-Nusra. Um, they've only been marginally <coughs> successful uh, in stopping the global activities of these uh, groups. But recent evidence suggests that uh, the American attacks against the Islamic State, Daesh, have been more successful. Um, we have evidence that suggests that the access to oil uh, that Daesh used in order to fund its activities has been <coughs> precipitously cut. Um, and that oil was a, 
the lifeblood of the uh, Islamic State uh, in Syria and Iraq. Um, and it was um, one of the reasons why so many people were attracted from abroad to move to support Daesh. Um, at the beginning, when they were flush with money, the Islamic State was offering about 400 euro a week uh, to foreign fighters. Um, that's an awful lot of money if you're a young man in Europe, uh, currently unemployed. Um, and so that was very attractive. Those rates have been cut precipitously, uh, and not nearly as much money is being made available. Uh, and there's uh, other evidence that indicates that the Islamic State is being, beginning to hurt financially. I don't think that's going to have much effect upon uh, the Islamic State's ability to make attacks abroad. Uh, those attacks, generally speaking, are very cheap um, and are uh, possible only because of the incredible will of, of the people involved. Um, but all governments have an interest in stopping that particular war. The next war is a gas war, a natural gas war. And to explain this, I have to refer back to previous wars. You've got Qatar here, a lot of natural gas, lots and lots of natural gas, lots to, get, to sell it on the open market. You've got Saudi Arabia, interested in, in selling a lot of oil, and then you've got Syria. And up here you have Turkey with all sorts of pipelines. The Saudis and the, the Qataris have been interested for a long period of time in building a pipeline through Syria to Turkey. And that natural gas would be sold directly to the Europeans. Uh, and this would enrich the Qataris and the Saudis to an incredible degree. It's a very, very lucrative pipeline. Assad, uh, the leader of Syria, adamantly opposed the pipeline, primarily because if that natural gas were to hit the European market, it would undercut tremendously Russian natural gas. It would remove the Russian lever over Ukraine and over Germany um, to an incredible degree. So as a good, loyal Russian ally, Assad tried as, as hard as he possibly could to prevent that natural pipeline, natural gas pipeline from being built. And he was successful. And so the Saudis and the Qataris were interested in removing Assad and getting a, a, a more favorable government in there so that the pipeline could be built. Obviously, Syria and Russia were uh, adamantly opposed to that. Um, get rid of, getting rid of Assad is one way of making sure that the pipeline is built. Now the final war that's being fought is between Turkey and the Kurds. And this is an old war. It's been going on for an awful long time. The Kurds live in four countries. They live in Iran, they live in Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. And they have long agitated for their own state, Kurdistan. Um, and by rights, they should have their own nation state. Uh, they are one of the largest ethnic groups on the planet. Um, and that they are a nation that really does not have its own state. Um, but if you were Ir Iraq, Syria, uh, Iran, or Turkey, you're not interested in giving up your territory. Uh, and the Kurds want territory. Uh, and some of the territory is very valuable. Uh, 
some of the Kurdish territory in Iraq uh, has phenomenal amounts of oil. Uh, so you really want to keep that under the control of your central government. Now, the largest percentage of Kurds live in Turkey, uh, and the history of the Turkish-Kurdish relations was very bad. Uh, the Turkish government uh, had a very repressive attitude toward the Kurds. About, uh, about four, five years ago, um, the, the Turks were able to capture one of the prominent Kurdish leaders, Ocalan, and put him in prison under rather severe conditions. And over time, Ocalan began to uh, become a little more moderate in his point of view. I don't want to say that uh, he betrayed his previous position because I suspect he was tortured oh, uh, terribly. Um, but they were able, the Turks in Ocalan were able to come up with um, more or less a ceasefire accord. Um, and it's, this was a tribute to President Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, uh, able to damp down, tamp down uh, this long-standing dispute. Well, that has unraveled completely. And it's largely because the Kurds have been one of the more effective fighting forces on, uh, against the Islamic State. And this has been particularly true along the Syrian-Kurdish border. And the Syrian Kurds have occupied a great deal of territory here and a great deal of territory here. There's a gap here, however, uh, that's not filled with Kurds. It's filled with Arabs. Um, but the, the Kurds are trying to consolidate their control of that region. And because of their success against the Islamic State on the ground, they are prepared to tell the world that they deserve uh, recognition now. Uh, because they've served as a loyal ally to the United States and to the Western Alliance uh, in fighting a terrible enemy. Uh, and the Kurds really are the most effective ground force uh, in the war against uh, the Islamic State. Turkey is desperately afraid of this contingency uh, because if the Syrian Kurds were to establish some sort of semi-autonomous autonomous region um, there, uh, it would probably attract the Turkish Kurds, uh, the Iranian Kurds, and the uh, Iraqi Kurds. Uh, in other words, they'd want to consolidate. Um, and you would set into motion a series of, of moves that might dissolve some of the states in the region. Um, it's unfortunate that after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire uh, that we just didn't create a Kurdistan at that time. It would have saved a lot of problems. Um, but we can't, there's no rewind button in history, unfortunately. Um, so this war is heating up to a tremendous degree. President Erdogan has become increasingly more authoritative, uh, authoritarian uh, in Turkey, uh, and he's bombing the hell out of the Kurds in southeastern uh, Turkey right now. Um, and it's a very curious situation because Turkey has asserted that it's opposed to the Islamic State. Therefore, the Islamic State is presumably the Turkish enemy. Um, and the Kurds have been effective enemies to the Islamic State. And if you follow the balance of power logic, the enemy of my enemy should be my friend. But Erdogan has decided that the enemy of my enemy is still my enemy. And he's fighting both the Islamic State and the Kurds simultaneously, which makes no sense whatsoever and complicates tremendously 
um, the ability of the United States to coordinate um, allied action um, in uh, Syria and Iraq. So those are the different wars that are going on uh, in the region. And they overlap. Uh, some of them are complementary. Some of them are contradictory. Um, and what, where we are right now is with a very fragile ceasefire uh, in Syria that we only have very dim outlines of right now. Um, but since we're analysts, we have to take the limited information that we have and piece together a pattern. It seems to me that what's, what they're probably talking about in Geneva right now is for the U.S. to back off of its position that Assad must leave, uh, that the U.S. has got to swallow its pride, and Obama has to basically say that goal is no longer a goal of the United States. And that's one of the reasons why I think that Russia pulled out. I think that Russia pulled out in order to give Obama some room in order to make this concession. However, it's not like Assad is going to be allowed to stay and rule all of Syria the way he did in the past. I think what people are talking about in Geneva is carving up uh, Syria into a federal structure uh, of, uh, to take the Swiss model of cantons. Um, and that Assad can stay up in the north west corner of Syria where the Alawites uh, are. And the Kurds can stay where they are. And the Sunnis can stay where they are. And the Yazidis can stay where they are. And each of these groups will be given greater autonomy from the central government of Syria. And that what you're going to have is a very fragile coalition um, that can work as long as people um, don't believe that any of these different groups are intruding upon the affairs of the other. The Russians will have to sacrifice the integrity of the Assad regime in order to do that, but they're going to make sure that they keep Assad in to preserve the naval base at Tartus and the military base at Latakia. They don't really care about the Sunnis, um, and the Sunnis can take the majority of the, the territory of, of Syria. The United States has got to worry about the various minority groups in Syria. Um, the Alawites, the Christians, the Druze, all the, the different groups who were there, who were united in more or less in a coalition of terror um, against Assad. And the United States has got to figure out a way to protect their integrity um, against either the Alawites uh, or the Sunnis from trying to reestablish their power. There is one major obstacle to this idea working. I mean, theoretically, all plans work, okay? Um, but that doesn't say very much. I mean, it is it's, it's possible to think about this federal structure in a way that makes sense. But the big obstacle is the fact that the Syrian Sunnis and the Iraqi Sunnis do not share the same objectives. The Syrian Sunnis are majority population in Syria. The, the Iraqi Sunnis are a minority population in Iraq. The Iraqi Sunnis want to get back into power. And the people that are primarily um, responsible for the, the activities of the Iraqi Sunnis are the former Ba'athists 
who supported Saddam Hussein. In other words, they are the people that the United States prevented from being involved in the Iraqi government after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. They want back <coughs> power. There's no way that that's going to happen as long as the United States is committed to the idea that there's got to be a popular uh, government in Iraq. Because a popular government in Iraq will almost invariably turn out a Shia government. 60% of the population of Iraq is Shia. And so there's one big stumbling block to the, the federal solution for Syria. <coughs> and that is the, the attitude of the Iraqi Sunnis, uh, who don't share the same objectives as the Syrian Sunnis. I don't know how that can be resolved. Um, it's very, very difficult for me to see some way for the Ba'athists to get back into power in Iraq and preserve at the same time the principles of representative democracy. Um, so I think that we're going to have to see whether or not someone can finesse this particular issue uh, and offer the Iraqi Sunnis something uh, that would satisfy them, uh, short of controlling Iraq outright again. All right, 30 minutes. That's good. Yeah, right on the dot. <laughs> and now, a more interesting part of the talk. Yeah. Yeah, so with the Atlantic article, they, uh, Obama starts talking about how the allies are dragging their feet. Um, I, just based off all the wars that you spoke of, it seems like the Sunnis within Saudi Arabia and Qatar, or Qatar have, I guess, the most uh, interest involved there, uh, with economically speaking as well as ideologically. Um, I guess what I'm interested in wondering why Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey haven't really been interested with forming like a real coalition, really moving in on Syria, because they know, I think they would know that the U.S. will also financially back a lot of the operation. Well, it's, it's really a question of who you're going to support, okay? I mean, the, the Saudis have a certain capability, and they've threatened to send troops in to Syria, uh, but the Saudis really are, don't have a robust army. They have one of the best air forces in the world, uh, courtesy of the United States. But uh, their army isn't that impressive. And really, what you've, you've got to win the war on the ground. So Qatar um, and uh, Saudi Arabia really have nothing to bring to the table. Turkey could send in a formidable army. And a lot of the Turkish army is in Iraq right now. But as soon as Turkey moves into Syria, uh, it sets in a whole number of other forces into play. And the Americans don't really want to see the Turks move into Turkey because the first objective of, of the Turkish army will be to obliterate the Kurds. Um, and that doesn't suit the American interest. I mean, the only other ground force that is working with the Americans right now are the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And the Iranian Revolutionary Guard is a very, very effective fighting ground force. But the Americans and the Iranians have a hard time because they're not supposed to talk to each other. Uh, they're supposed to hate each other. And so the Americans have been conducting this air war against the Islamic State. And there is, the Iranians have been conducting this ground war against the Islamic State. And they came up with a brilliant solution to the problem of coordinating. I mean, one of the more difficult military 
tactic is to coordinate a ground and an air war. Because you've got to know exactly where the troops are before you drop the bombs. Because you don't want to drop them on your own troops. But the Americans and the Iranians can't talk to each other. So the Americans decided to leave all their air chatter open. The Americans talked to their pilots on open military channels. And the Iranians can listen in. And the Iranians have decided to conduct their ground operations with completely open military channels as well. So the Americans can listen in. And so they're listening in to each other, knowing exactly what each other is doing without talking to each other at all. It's amazing. Um, but so, I mean, the Iranians are the only ground troops other than the Kurds that the Americans tr trust right now. Uh, and that's a weird thing to say. I mean, just hearing those words come out of my mouth is very strange. Um, but there is a tectonic shift that's coming, that's going on in the Middle East. I mean, the Saudis are seeing the handwriting on the wall. The Americans are really becoming quite disaffected with Saudi Arabia. And they're moving closer to Iran. Um, they, neither side can go too fast because, according to their publics, we're supposed to hate each other. But the strategic interests of both sides are almost identical right now. Um, so that's basically what's going on. Unless you've got troops on the ground, you're not really going to control an outcome. You can't do it from the air. And can I ask also, sorry, like about Israel? Um, they haven't been involved at all, I guess. Well, they haven't been involved, and they don't really want to get involved. They're really, really, really worried about uh, the growth of Iranian power uh, because that power is being transferred almost automatically to Hezbollah and Hamas. Um, but the Israelis know that the second they get involved in any military activity in the region that immediately the Israeli-Palestinian issue comes to the fore. It drowns out every other issue. Um, and so the Americans do not want to see the Israelis get involved in much the same way that the Americans did not want to see the Israelis get involved in the 91 Persian Gulf War or in the 2003 Iraq War. Um, because it just, it diverts everyone's attention. Um, the Palestinian-Israeli dispute is for most people in the region still the most important issue of, of concern. Um, and there's no way the Israelis can get around that. Um, the Israelis are also seeing the handwriting on the wall. Um, the Obama administration is very disaffected with the Netanyahu government. And it's very hard to see exactly how that's going to be repaired. Uh, everyone keeps talking about the next president. Um, and, you know, that's important. But the Netanyahu government has made some almost unforgivable moves in diplomacy. The, the, the act of Netanyahu giving a speech to Congress opposing the policy of the President of the United States is not something that many people are ever going to forget. Um, and it was a really bad move by the Netanyahu government. I mean, it gave them a temporary boost. No question, maybe that's all Netanyahu wanted, was to win the next election. But the long-term consequences of that act were really um, corrupting. 
Yeah. So I, uh, there's been small-scale attacks and assassinations in Dagestan that have been linked to ISIS. Do you think ISIS can find a, a breeding, a fertile breeding ground in Chechnya and Dagestan, which would lead to attacks in like Russia that, that would be ISIS-funded? No question. I mean, I think the Russians are wor worried about that. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the fighters in the Islamic State are Chechen. A lot of the fighters in the Islamic State are Uyghurs, and the Chinese are really worried about that. Those wars will come home to Russia and China. Um, there are Chechens being well-trained, and there are Uyghurs being well-trained uh, in sabotage activities. Um, and it is sort of disconcerting for me that the Russians and the Chinese don't take that threat much more seriously. Um, I mean, presumably the Chinese can afford to have a longer view of what's going on here, but they don't seem to, to be as taken by the threat from the Uyghurs as I think they should be. Um, and the Uyghurs have been caught in all sorts of places. They've been caught in Vietnam, they've been caught in Indonesia, trying to book passage to Turkey. Um, they are all flooding to the Islamic State to be well-trained. Um, now that legacy is going to stay with us for a very long period of time. I think when you think about the Syrian civil war, when you think about what's going on in Syria, it's very important to try to disaggregate the whole issue of terrorism. Um, because terrorism is a completely different kettle of fish. Um, I don't know how you go about saying we're going to defend you against terrorism um, unless we all willingly give up our civil liberties you know, to let the government read everything and know everything that we do. Um, you just can't stop terrorism. And the, the blast in Brussels is pretty much definitive proof of that. This guy was just carting a piece of luggage into the airport. Very innocent activity, you know, and it wasn't in a protected zone or anything like that. And you can set up a screening barrier, you know, and you set them up at the boarding area. Now maybe you set them up at the entrance to the airport. Maybe you should set them up at the roadway that goes into the airport. Maybe you should set them up at the door of everyone's house so that they can't leave without being checked. I mean, I don't, at some point, you just can't do anything about it. So think about terrorism as a completely different issue from what's going on with Syria. And uh, there's no cure for terrorism. No way to stop it. Yeah. Um, thinking about Syria, um, one thought that I've seen is that um, Putin's decision to withdraw most of his troops now is to reestablish Russia's role as um, a peacemaker. Um, given the with like the ceasefire in mind, um, given the state of the talks in Geneva, do you think that that's like a possibility? Uh, it is a possibility. I mean, because I think and and Putin can lay claim to being an important influence on the outcome of the war. Uh, I mean, I think he really did. Um, <coughs> jar the Americans out of this belief that all you had to do was get rid of Assad. Because um, it was a really stupid attitude for the Americans to have, uh, that getting rid of Assad would solve the problems. It would solve the problem of the first war, but none of these others. Um, so I, he, he <coughs> lay claim to the idea of a peacemaker, but 
you know, the Russian people will buy that, but I don't think the rest of the world is going to buy that. Um, I mean, if, if there's one thing we've learned about Putin is that he's got a lot of his own self-interest wrapped up in virtually every move that he makes. Um, and the, the people that are paying the heaviest price are the Russian people. Um, in January of 2014, the average wage in Russia was $850. In January of 2015, the average wage was $450. That is a dramatic decline in real wages. A dramatic decline. Um, and the Russian people are, you know, they're stoic. They're willing to pay that price. But I'm not sure how much longer they're going to be willing to do so. It's getting real tough over there. Do you think that the devathification of the Iraqi government was a mistake, or at least to the extent that it was carried out, like the teachers and... Yeah, the devathification of Iraq was a total, complete mistake. I mean, it was a bonehead move. Um, yeah, and the, the refusal, I mean, the idea of disbanding the Iraqi army was stupid as well. I mean, the Americans, I mean, think about what the Americans did. They went in, they overthrew the head of government, then they dismantled the government entirely, and then they dismantled the security forces of the country in one fell swoop with nothing to replace it. I mean, how do they think societies operate? I mean, it's just beyond belief that Paul Bremer would have done any of that stuff. The guy's an idiot. Um, but that's what we did, you know? And, you know, we worked with thugs before. I mean, we could have worked with the Ba'athists. We could have worked with the Iraqi military. Um, God, we trained the Iraqi military. Um, <laughs> you know, and, you know, the reason why the Islamic State has been so successful is because a lot of the Sunni guys working for the Islamic State are guys that we trained. When they took over Mosul, and they raided the barracks and took all the weapons. They knew exactly how to use the weapons. They knew where the weapons were. They knew the codes on the, 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 the safes that protected them. Um, you know, we had done all that stuff. You know, I don't know why Bremer went so far as he did. It was dumb. Yeah. Um, so with regard to the Islamic State, um, obviously I think their long-term goal is to establish like a working government with control of permanent with permanent control of territory, do you think there's any path to legitimacy for Daesh as a as a nation state? I mean, is there any way that because obviously if that's what the Islamic State wants to do, if they want to actually establish the caliphate, is there any way that they can do that? Do you think in a long view? Uh, there's no way they can do that as long as they support terror outside of their boundaries. I mean, if Daesh wanted to say, we want this territory and we want it to be ruled according to our interpretation of Islamic law. And we don't want anyone to come in, but we won't cause anyone else trouble. I think that the world would basically say, well, okay, we'll try you out. But as long as it supports terror, you can't allow it to happen. Um, you know, I mean, you've got to take action against it. Not because the action is going to be effective, because I don't think it can be effective, but because inaction in the face of terror is suicide for a government. 
I mean, I can't imagine what the American people would have done if on September 12, 2001, George Bush would simply have said, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles, which is probably something close to what he should have said. I'm really not that nasty a guy. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, what Bush should have said, instead of saying, we're going to wipe terror off the face of the planet, global war and terror, leading the American people to believe that they could be safe, he should have said, this is going to be a, a long, hard slog. And you know, we're going to try to track these, these guys down, and we're going to kill them. But don't think that we're ever going to be safe in the same way we were safe before, because that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, I'm curious um, about the, the the downing of the, the Russian fighter jet that was uh, by the Turks. By the Turks, because uh, I mean that seems like an incredibly reckless thing to do. Like it, it almost seems like Erdogan was like trying to spark a war. But, but what reason was there, if any? Well, you know, going back, I mean, the Soviet, the rough Soviets. <laughs> I am that old. Um, the Russians had intruded on Turkish airspace on, repeatedly prior to that episode, repeatedly, and Erdogan had issued warnings to the Russians. And I think that what happened is that Erdogan basically said. The next time it happens, we're going to shoot you down. And he did. And Putin had to then to think about what that meant. Um, you know, it, it, it was a cause for war. You know, he shot down one of our pilots, killed him. But he also had to think, well, do I really want to fight a war with Turkey right now? And the answer to that is probably no. I mean, I don't think he was fully prepared to fight a war with Turkey. Um, and so he backed down. Um, Putin, <coughs> I mean, we, we make, the press makes him out like he's crazy. He's not. He's a very good chess player. And, you know, that was a losing move for him. Would you say Erdogan is crazy? Erdogan is getting crazier and crazier. I don't know what he's eating or drinking <laughs> or smoking or whatever. Uh. But he is becoming more and more unpredictable. Uh, and I am worried about what's going on in Turkey. I'm really worried about it. What incentive do Russians have for crossing into Turkey's borders? Why do they keep doing it? Just to rattle the Turks. Um, to, to make the Turks uh, aware of Russian power. But the, the Turkish Air Force is probably capable of dealing with the Russian Air Force. Um, the Turkish Air Force is quite good. Um, I think that, you know, Putin basically wants to say to everyone in that region, this used to be our sphere of influence. And we want everyone to be aware of the fact that we're still important, we're still powerful. And I don't think that anyone really doesn't think that. And I don't know why Putin feels obliged to take such strong moves to prove that. But he does. Uh, and I think he just wanted to rattle the Turks. Um, keep them off balance, basically. Yeah. Uh, 
the hat first. Okay. Uh, can you speak to the role that like the limited amount of natural resources like water and agricultural land has played in the conflict in the Middle East, as well as what you foresee climate change playing as like exacerbating this con these any of these conflicts and terror more broadly? Yeah. Well, uh, climate change is the underlying source of the Arab Spring. Um, the Middle East has gone is going through one of the worst droughts of the last 900 years. Um, and one of the things that's responsible for the Arab Spring are the incredible rise uh, in food prices uh, because of that. And if there's anything we've learned about politics is that food insecurity is one of the primary causes of political instability. Um, and yet when you go back to the original incident in the Arab Spring, um, the fellow by the name of Bouaziz in Tunisia. You know, this, this guy had two degrees in engineering. He had a wife, um, he had a mother, sister, couldn't get a job. He was selling vegetables, fruit, in the city square. Police officer came, said you can't sell them here. He protested, and she hit him, knocked him to the ground. And in his desperation, because now his fruit was confiscated, he had been humiliated in front of everyone, he burned himself alive. That's the degree of desperation that the drought has caused. Um, and. It's all over the Middle East. Uh, and the, the first flood of refugees out of Syria were all rural Syrians. The flood that we're seeing right now are the city Syrians, the, the more, the well-educated, the engineers, the lawyers, the doctors. But the first flood were all farmers that couldn't make it anymore. And they were forced out because of the violence, but also I mean, the violence was for them decisive because their lives had already become so precarious. You know, climate change is, I mean, this is, the, this is the manifestation of climate change that you will all witness. It's the mass movement of people. I mean, we call it migration, but it's not migration. It's the forced displacement of people. And we're witnessing it here, out of the Middle East, and out of Africa now, I mean, the Ethiopian crisis, uh, drought is horrific. The South African drought is horrific. Uh, people are saying it's because of El Nino, and it, that well may be the case. Um, but I suspect it's the larger force of climate change. Um, I think that you know, we're going to see people moving all over the planet. And the hostility that that engenders is only going to get worse. I mean, when I see the reversal of fortunes, of Angela Merkel because of the issue of migration. I mean, I find it petrifying that, you know, nine months ago she was on top of the world, and last week she, her party lost three state elections to this bozo party <coughs> called Alternatives for Deutschland, which is a rapidly anti-immigrant party. I mean, it 
it's scary how quickly this turns. Migration is politically a very destabilizing force. How come none of the women in this class have asked any questions? It's all been men. Women are uncurious. Do you think that the United States and Europe general homophobia has it's been increasing? Do you think that contributes to these very conflicts? Which the, the Islamophobia that's been increasing. I mean, there were some of the remarks that Trump has made, and I mean, this whole campaign has been. Like, no question. No question. I mean, but this is, is a, you know, whenever you have these anti-ethnic, anti-racial, um, anti-religious movements in a country. Don't think that that's really what's going on. Because those types of sentiments are things that are not created because we're all guilty of, of those types of feelings. I mean, those types of feelings exist within all of us but they can be whipped up to an incredible frenzy when people are feeling insecure. And this is exactly what's happening. I mean, what's going on in the United States and in Europe is a reflection of the increasing economic insecurity of the American people and the Europeans, largely precipitated by the decline in incomes that's, that's occurred over the last 40 years. Because of that insecurity, people are looking for an explanation. And we have idiots who say, it's because of Mexicans, or it's because of Muslims, or it's because whatever. And people are eager to accept any explanation for their misfortune. Um, you know, and look, I can give you so many examples, historical examples, of where this type of sentiment is deliberately whipped up to be a political instrument. Yeah. Do you think we have any hope of like moving away from that rhetoric in the neoliberal political climate that the whole West is kind of caught up in? Of course we have hope. I mean, my God, you all can say something. I mean, is, is there any, a reason why you can't protest against that? Do you think you have an interest in being silent while it goes on? I guarantee you, I mean, someone's going to come after you if you let it go on, it doesn't stop. You know, the whole history of imperialism is trying to find another that you can keep down. And the Europeans did it successfully on non-Europeans for 400 years. And then, after they'd done it to everyone else in the world, they turned it on themselves. And for some reason, you know, the Germans thought that the British were subhuman, and the French thought that the Germans were subhuman. You know, that type of logic doesn't stop. You're always going to find someone to beat up. If you think that the only way you can maintain your own security is by making another person feel insecure, you're a fool. But it is the most common political tactic known to man. So kind of going with that, um, I was going to ask earlier, but um, it's kind of a lot of the action you've been seeing from Russia right now. Like, isn't it, could be explained as um, trying to take the attention away from problems at home, and they needed, after the 
Ukraine conflicts and intervention did not really go their way. They pulled out their forces and they needed a win somewhere. And Syria was the perfect opportunity. Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, and th this is another standard ploy politically. I mean, whenever you're having trouble at home, do something abroad. Yeah, the mission accomplished thing we pulled. Right, you know, and I think Putin is doing that. Although, you know, that's a wasting asset. Uh, according to the most recent public opinion polls, his popularity has decreased by 10% over the last three months. Um, and that's a rather precipitous decline. Um, but his popularity at the height, when we, he was bombing and showing all those photographs of the Russian fighters in Syria, his, his popularity was about 82%. I mean, the Russian people loved him. And they were willing to endure any privation in order to feel great again. But it doesn't last that long. And would you say that, I mean, I think that situation is kind of similar to what you can say about in Saudi Arabia with the political instability within the, within the family. Yeah, except that I don't know King Salman all that well, you know? I mean, Abdullah was a very cautious man. Salman is much less risk averse than Abdullah. You know, and the Saudi adventure in Yemen sort of freaks me out, because I don't know exactly what the Saudis think they're going to accomplish. Um, and Salman, I mean, I just don't know enough. You know, he doesn't have a long enough track record yet for me to think coherently about him. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask what you thought about like the de-radicalization efforts and if you think that they would be enough to like help lower um, just the radicalization that's going on. De-radicalization effort. Who's doing that? I'm not familiar with it. Um, I heard on NPR the other day that um, there are different groups in like Turkey and in um, like, I don't know where else, but in Turkey and I think they said Iran that um, were like had buildings and like institutions that they're taking in um, people who like escaped from ISIS or not escaped but left and like helping to de-radicalize them. And I was wondering if like you, I guess you don't know. Yeah, I, I can't answer your question because I'm not familiar with them. Um, you know, I mean, the Saudis have sown the wind, okay? I mean, their support for radical activities abroad was purchased in order to secure peace and quiet at home. They didn't want radicals questioning the monarchy. But if you wanted to go cause trouble any place else in the world, go right ahead. We'll fund you. Um, and I think the Saudis now, I mean, they've got the whirlwind right next door with the Islamic State. Recently, uh, moderates won a lot of Iranian elections. Do you think Iran will become a more moderate state, and how do you think that will affect the Ayatollah? I think Iran already is a moderate state. I mean, I you know, I mean, people freak out about Iran, and I think that's just a product of American propaganda. Um, ever since the reform movement, you know, 2009, I think Iran has been pretty much settled down and. The young people in, in Iran really want to have um, more economic opportunity and a degree of greater personal freedom. And that's pretty much set in stone. I don't think there's any way the Ayatollah can turn that back. 
you're not going to have an opportunity like existed in 79. Um, so, you know, I think that basically we just should leave Iran alone, you know, open some minor things, investments and things like that, uh, but let the Iranian people work it out at their own pace. Um, you're talking about one of the more well-established cultures in uh, world history, you know, these people know how to deal with it. <laughs> They've taken care of business for centuries and centuries and centuries. Um, they don't need our help. They really don't. Yeah. Um, this is a bit of a hypothetical, but considering all the conflicts and the underlying problem of global climate change, do you think it's somewhat of a pipe dream to envision some sort of closure without the dissolution of borders and nation states because they're inherently separating people. Um, like you said, mass migration uh, because of climate change means that there has to be integration with some of the, with some of the migrants. But um, if you have these nation states with special interests, is it even possible anymore? Well, let me put it to you this way. There are some problems in the world for which the nation state is too small. There are some problems for the, uh, in the world for which the nation state is too large. I don't think the nation state is going to disappear, but I think it really has to be supplemented and complemented by other institutions. And that's going to be a very difficult process. The only way it's going to happen is at the ground level. There is, as we speak, an emerging global civic culture. You know, and you're all part of it. I mean, be, you're all studying abroad, you're all, you know, uh, having people in your homes from all over the world. Um, I mean, it's really an extraordinary process that's going on right now. And you're beginning to learn um, in ways that my generation never learned, uh, that there's no reason to be afraid of difference. Um, and, you know, you've got a really important task in front of you. But don't look to my generation to help you out. We're too screwed up, okay? Um, you know, you live through the Cold War, you get all messed up in the head, you know? <laughs> you're, you're, you're huddling under your wooden desk because you know, you, you, a nuclear war is going to occur. You don't think that's going to have any effect. <laughs> um, but, you know, this global civic culture is, is one of the most encouraging things that's ever happened to the race. Um, you know, the species, you know, we're, I mean, we learn with great difficulty, but we're learning. And your generation is where it's happening. And now you're talking to each other all over the world. You're listening to music from all over the world. Um, and, you know, you're learning how to fight each other, you know, a little more intelligently. I mean, you're not screaming at each other the way people in my generation did. I mean, I don't say you've got it down yet. I mean, you've still got a long way to go, but at least you've got more opportunities to, to work this stuff out. The most important thing for you to learn is to learn how to disagree well, intelligently, because there are some real differences that exist in the way we think about the way human society should be structured. And there are important differences, but they need not lead to conflict. Um, and the idea of killing each other over whether or not you think private property should exist or it should be public property is sort of absurd. But that's, you know, 
what the Cold War was all about. You know, when you state it that way, you say, my God, you had 60,000 nuclear weapons because there was a dispute over whether property should be private or not. Yeah, that's what we did. <laughs> Boy, that sounded like a closing thing, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. And then on the nukes, you know? Yeah, well, okay. Then I guess it's over. <laughs> <laughs>